0: You're listening to a sermon series by Grace City Church, a church plant in Green Square in Sydney. For more information about us, visit gracecity.com.au. I think this one will be a hard one to give and a hard one to hear. I do need to say some things before we properly start. I want to acknowledge right from the very start that this is an incredibly sensitive issue, and that's partly because of the subject matter. We're talking about babies, Who are immensely vulnerable and fragile and we're also talking about women um, often very vulnerable but it's not just the subject matter that makes this sensitive Uh, it's the stories real stories there will be people here with stories each unique and complex in their own way Uh, we need to acknowledge that I know some stories many I won't Uh, This is also quite a personal issue for my wife, Ash, and I. Um, I'll share about that uh, in a moment. Uh, For this reason, I do need to give you a warning that this, uh, we are going to talk about very heavy and serious things today. Um, At times, uh, I will mention things like sexual violence, which I do not do lightly. Um, I won't be unnecessarily graphic or explicit, but it could be that, This is not the right time for you to listen to this sermon. I want to say that's okay. Use your own wisdom. If you need a break, it's okay. Just in terms of the language and terms that we are going to use, I'll generally describe the unborn child as a fetus, but I'll also occasionally describe them as a child or a baby because, as I'll explain, I think that's what they are. In terms of the word abortion, um, it's a slightly more American term. Here in Australia, the medical term normally used is termination of pregnancy. But I will mostly speak about abortion because that's the term commonly used in our culture. And when I say abortion, I'm referring to the deliberate ending of a pregnancy so that it doesn't result in a live birth. And right from the get-go, I want to acknowledge that there is pain on both sides. Uh, The debate is often framed in terms of either being pro-life or pro-choice. Sometimes that's helpful, sometimes that's not. But we need to acknowledge that there is pain on both sides. Uh, We need to feel and appreciate that pain and to speak with sensitivity to it. Professor of bioethics, Margaret Somerville, she describes this topic as a world of competing sorrows. There are sorrows at every point, and we need to feel those sorrows as we engage with this issue. But it's also true that both sides are often motivated by compassion, uh, both out of women and children. Uh, There are those who are less than noble on both sides, but a lot of discussion actually comes from a place of compassion, uh, and so we can't demonise or accuse But at the same time, we can't sit on the fence. We can't just disengage and say that it's all too much, because this really is life and death. Uh, The Guttmacher Institute happens to be pro-abortion. It estimates that there are at least 73 million abortions every year, 73 million. That's more than the total number of people that were killed in World War II, and that is every single year. There is so much at stake, uh, and that's for both sides, and so we can't sit on the fence. It's important for both men and women to engage in this issue together. But that raises a question, and in particular it raises a question about me uh, and the fact that I am a man. Uh, One of the top questions that was asked in the Slido uh, was whether there would be a female voice in this sermon. Uh, And I want to be very honest about the fact that this issue does uniquely affect women because they are the ones who bear the child. That is something I haven't and never will experience. Um, But I do think it's worth saying at least two things. Uh, The first thing to say is that almost everything in this sermon is things that I have learnt from women. Uh, Some of these women have written books and articles, uh, like Megan Best, Nancy Piercy, Emma Wood, Margaret Somerville. I also spent some time speaking with a Christian midwife uh, who happens to go to this church. I also had the opportunity to speak with a Christian woman who had had an abortion. She doesn't go to this church. And the things I have learnt from each of these women has been invaluable. And what you are hearing in this sermon is a lot of their voices. But the other thing to say is that abortion isn't only a women's issue. And I say that partly because of my story and the story of my wife, Ash, and our son, Levi. At the end of 2020, uh, when Ash was about 20 weeks pregnant, uh, we discovered that our son, Levi, had a significant heart condition uh, due to a rare genetic syndrome. We were told uh, that 95% of babies with his condition uh, would normally be terminated. We were asked what we would like to do. I remember having to confront the reality that how I imagined my life with all my hopes and ambitions would be dramatically different if our son survived after birth. Uh, He would have had significant mental and physical disabilities. Um, He would have needed at least three open-heart surgeries before he was five. I put simply, if he survived, I wouldn't be giving this sermon. But how I imagine my life for myself is nothing compared to being able to love my son. After four days with us and after doing everything we could, he passed away. And yes, it's true, other people's experiences are different. It's true, I'm not a woman, uh, but this topic isn't hypothetical for me. And so I hope I can have the privilege of being able to share today. I also need to say that sermons are by their nature general. Uh, there are so many different kinds of people with so many different experiences and stories. And given the opportunity, I would say things differently to different people in different circumstances. Uh, but sermons are a little more general, which is just the kind of communication that it is. And so I can't say everything. Uh, it's something to be aware of. Uh, this is also a sermon for us and for our context, Our context is Australia. Uh, It exists in the broader developed world. And while I wouldn't necessarily come to a different set of conclusions, I would preach this sermon differently in a different context. We're also going to need to cover a number of areas, including medicine, psychology, philosophy, as well as politics and law. Uh, It's true, I'm not an expert in each of these areas. But this issue actually requires that we pull together A whole bunch of things we can't just leave it to the doctors or the politicians we need to pull together some different areas but at the same time what we need above all is God's perspective we need him to speak his gracious and authoritative word when it comes to this topic and that's what makes this a sermon not just a talk my hope and prayer is that we would increasingly see the world God's way because he is our creator But above all, I want to win you to Jesus, to his love, compassion, justice and truth because he is our only hope for redemption and restoration in such a broken world. Heads up, we are going to start slightly more philosophical and medical and become increasingly personal. We'll also go a little bit longer because sometimes it just takes time to say the things that need to be said. The only other thing I want to say is that I want to encourage us to be careful of jumping too quickly to the extreme or the rare cases. Uh, with a topic like this, there are a whole range of difficult, complex and extreme situations. And these are real examples and real stories, uh, even in our church. And many of them are very, very sad. Uh, our hearts rightly bleed these stories, we do need to address them and sometimes these situations actually can clarify what we believe and why. Uh, But I do want to say be careful of jumping too quickly to these more difficult or complex situations because the danger is is that we use these extreme cases to determine our response to the issue as a whole. Uh, Put simply, if we spend too much time looking at the grey areas then everything starts to look grey. What we need to do is start with a general understanding, build a solid foundation, and only from there turn to the more difficult cases. Uh, For that reason, I will only briefly touch on some of the trickier topics, uh, which I also think is somewhat appropriate, because these issues are often better dealt with in a pastoral context. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we come to you humbly and brokenhearted. We beg that you would teach us to love like you. We pray that you would speak the tender and powerful words of the gospel into our hearts today. I pray that you would cover over any stray words that I might speak. Give us patience, compassion, courage, and grace. And I pray that you would do a mighty work of grace in our church today. Amen. I want to start with a little thought experiment. It comes from an article written by a woman called Judith Jarvis Thompson, written back in 1971. It's called A Defence of Abortion. Uh, In it, she writes this, and as a heads up, it's a bit random. Can you give it to me? Thanks. You wake up in the morning and find yourself back-to-back in bed with an unconscious violinist, a famous unconscious violinist. He has been found to have a fatal kidney ailment, and the Society of Music Lovers has canvassed all the available medical records and found that you alone have the right blood type to help. They have therefore kidnapped you. And last night, the violinist's circulatory system was plugged into yours so that your kidneys can now be used to extract poisons from his blood as well as your own. The director of the hospital now tells you, look, we're really sorry for the Society of Music Lovers that they did this to you. We would never have permitted it if we had known. But still they did it and the violinist is now plugged into you. To unplug you would be to kill him. But never mind, it's only for nine months. By then he will have recovered from his ailment and can safely be unplugged from you. Now I hope you can see that it would be an outrageous thing to expect you to stay hooked up to this unconscious violinist for a whole nine months. And while it might be extremely kind of you to stay hooked up to him, I'm sure we can all say that we would have, you would have the right to unplug yourself. You have the right to bodily autonomy. But Thompson goes on to claim that this is really not all that different from what's going on in pregnancy. A fetus, a baby, is connected to a woman for nine months, and should she wish wish to unplug herself, she has that right. And the rights of the baby, whatever they are, can't trump her right to bodily autonomy. It's her body. Now, I hope you can see that this is quite an elegant and a powerful argument. It's also not without massive problems, uh, particularly around the word unplugging and what that means in the case of pregnancy. But the important thing to know, this is why I tell you this, this article was part of a fundamental shift in the conversation around abortion that started in the 70s and continues today. See, abortion is not a new invention. Uh, It's been happening for thousands of years across basically every culture. But before the 70s and articles like Thompson's, the conversation around abortion was mainly about what a human embryo is and what rights it does or does not have. But after the 70s and articles like this, abortion shifted to become a distinctly women's issue. And it became particularly associated with women's rights and the question of bodily autonomy. And to put it simply, this association meant that to be pro-woman was to be pro-abortion. And to be anti-abortion was to be anti-woman. This is the kind of thinking that sits under the iceberg of the hashtag, my body, my choice. But before we move on too quickly, I want us to feel the pain, to feel the fire that sits under this way of framing things. Uh, Paxton Smith, she was a valedictorian student in her high school uh, in Texas last year. Uh, Just before she was set to deliver her school-approved valedictorian speech, uh, Texas introduced laws that banned abortion after a heartbeat was detected. Just for context, that was before the overturning of Roe v. Wade. But in response to the introduction of these laws in Texas, Paxton Smith, she switched out her approved speech for the one I want to share an excerpt from. Uh, It went viral in the days that followed. And she says this, I have dreams and hopes and ambitions. Every girl graduating today does. And we have spent our entire lives working towards our future. And without our input and without our consent, our control over that future has been stripped away from us. I am terrified that if my contraceptives fail, I am terrified that if I am raped, then my hopes and aspirations and dreams and efforts for my future will no longer matter. I hope you feel how gut-wrenching that is. I hope you can feel how dehumanising it is to have the autonomy over your own body taken away from you. And I cannot give up this platform to promote complacency and peace when there is a war on my body and a war on my rights. A war on the rights of your mothers, a war on the rights of your sisters, a war on the rights of your daughters. And remember, that was before the overturning of Roe v Wade. Uh, That happened earlier this year. That has since given enormous heat to this issue. Uh, It meant people started talking about this issue in a way that they normally wouldn't do. But can you see how this debate, how this discussion has been framed? It's been framed in terms of a zero-sum game. To be pro-life is seen as putting the baby over the woman... or to be pro-choice is seen as putting the woman over the baby. The issue in our culture is about whether abortion is right or wrong for women and whether it is good or bad for women. That is the primary issue in our culture. And the phrase, my body, my choice, is communicating that to be anti-abortion is to be anti-woman. To fight for the rights of unborn children is to deny and neglect the rights of women. So what do I want to say today? My aim today is to convince you that it is possible to love both unborn children and women. It doesn't need to be a zero-sum game. And the reason I say that is because that is who our God is. Our God loves both unborn children and women. And our God calls us and empowers us to love like him. And so, yes, I am going to argue for a firmly so-called pro-life position. But I want to show you that this doesn't mean uh, being as as harsh or dumb or mean as it's commonly portrayed. I want to show you that it doesn't mean being anti-woman. And my prayer for us as a church is that we wouldn't just believe this but that we would truly be a church that does love both unborn children and women. Today I have two very simple points. First, God loves unborn children. We'll spend some time unpacking that. And second, God loves women. And we'll spend some time unpacking that. Let's jump in, spend some time thinking about unborn children. I want to start by establishing that even from the very beginning of conception, what we are dealing with is a human. See, for the first eight weeks after conception, there is what's called an embryo in medical terms. After that, it becomes a fetus. And so we need to ask, is that a human or is it something not quite a human? Have a listen to what medical doctor and Christian bioethicist Megan Best says about the embryo. No educated person questions the humanity of the human embryo anymore. What we are dealing with is an embryonic human from the very beginning. Have a listen to what another, Doctor says, in the prestigious science journal Nature. The embryo, from the time it is created, is a unified, unique, dynamic, self-directed whole, not just a collection of cells there is evidence that organisation exists from the first cell division. See, everything necessary for the self-directed development of a human is present from conception. And from that point, development extends through the early stages of cell division, through implantation and all the way to birth. All of us were once tiny embryos, which means that from conception there is a third human genetically distinct from each of its parents. And there is no point where there isn't a distinct individual human. But that leads us to a key question, which is this. What is the moral status of the unborn human? When is there a right to life? And at what point do they deserve the full protection that we normally extend to any human under normal circumstances? Uh, There are really two theories here. The first is called the construction theory. The second is called the developmental theory. We'll look at each of them. The construction theory says, yes, we are dealing with a human, but they actually need something else before they are counted as a person. And the key word there is person. Because the construction theory sees a split between what it means to be a human and what it means to be a person. Being a human is not enough to qualify you as a person. Uh, This view goes back at least to a guy in the 1950s called Joseph Fletcher, uh, and he said that when it comes to the moral status of the unborn human, what is critical is personal status, not merely human status. Can you see the division there? And you see a similar thing in the work of Peter Singer. He's an Australian-born philosopher at Princeton University. He says, the life of a human organism begins at conception. The life of a person, a being with some level of self-awareness, does not begin so early. And this distinction between humanhood and personhood is actually what sat under the original decision made in Roe v. Wade back in 1973. Uh, The judge at the time said this. The word person, as used in the 14th Amendment, does not include the unborn. If the suggestion of personhood is established, the fetus's right to life would then be guaranteed. Can you see how the construction theory says that there's essentially something missing that a person needs to get or do before they count as a person? And only then do they have a full right to life. And so the key question becomes, what is the point when somebody gains personhood? What flips the switch from non-person to person? And my problem with this theory is that it's ultimately arbitrary and subjective. And it leads to places I think we're ultimately unwilling to go. So some people will say that the point is viability the ability to survive outside the womb. That's the point of gaining personhood. Um, This was actually the decision made in Roe v. Wade. But it's ultimately arbitrary because the point of viability is highly influenced by the standard of medical care available. The point of viability is much lower in the developed Western world. So does that mean humans become persons at an earlier age in the Western world? I hope you can see that. That's a horrible idea. Clearly untrue. But there's also no clearly defined point of viability. So at 23 weeks, there is a survival rate of about 30%. So does that make only 30% of them a person? At 24 weeks, it's 60%. 25 is 80. It has been low as 21 weeks and six days. Can you see it's not as simple as some people would like it to be? And the other thing with using viability to, de- to decide personhood status is that it ultimately says that the more dependent and vulnerable you are, the less of a person you are, the less protection you deserve. And I think most, if not all, of us would see it the other way around. The more dependent and vulnerable you are, the more protection you deserve. But what about birth? Birth as the point of gaining personhood? Well, again, it's ultimately arbitrary because it says that a 25-week-old baby outside the womb is a person, but one that is older and more developed but still in the womb doesn't count as a person. See, there's actually no fundamental difference between a baby inside and outside the womb. It's the same. The only thing that has changed is what's around the baby and the support it requires. Or what about consciousness, which is where Joseph Fletcher and Peter Singer think that personhood begins? And when they say consciousness, they're talking about things like self awareness, intelligence, a desire to live. But the problem with this is that none of these are defined moments, they emerge gradually. Have a look at what Christian philosopher Nancy Piercy says about this. The problem is that most of these characteristics to do with consciousness emerge gradually. They are not traits that someone either has or does not have. They are matters of degree, quantitative differences. What we do not find is a c- clear qualitative transition point for the momentous transformation from a non-person to a person. But a much bigger problem with using consciousness to define personhood is that newborn children don't have these traits or qualities either, which means all things being consistent, it would mean that neither do they qualify as a person, which also means it would be permissible to kill them under certain circumstances. Um, Peter Singer says, I quote, a three-year-old is a great case. And that's not to say anything about the intellectually handicapped who might lack some of the qualities that guys like Fletcher and Singer think are so important. I hope this makes your stomach turn. I hope you find this appalling. But this was actually the view that dominated the ancient world. They saw no difference between the unborn child and the newborn child. And one of the great atrocities of the ancient world was the extent to which they abandoned and left newborn children for dead. It was actually Christians who ultimately stood against this practice, both against infanticide and abortion. And I fear that if we buy into the construction theory that divides humanhood from personhood, and especially if we define personhood by consciousness, then we are setting our world on a trajectory that will take us back to a pre-Christian world that saw no difference between infanticide and abortion. But the problem that ultimately sits under the construction theory is the idea that you have to earn your place among us. You have to achieve protection. It's not enough to simply be human. You need to do something more. Ultimately, it's salvation by works. And remember that this is the view that sat underneath the decision in Roe v Wade in 1973. What's the alternative? The developmental theory says that humanhood and personhood are one and the same. Each and every human is a person and is therefore deserving of full protection and a right to life. Personhood status is not something you earn or achieve, it's something you are simply by virtue of being a human. And this applies to the human embryo just as much as it does to the 30-year-old man or woman. And yes, a fetus isn't as developed. But a fetus is not something that develops into a person. A fetus is a developing person. And this view is actually more coherent and consistent with the science Because personhood is a philosophical construct imposed over the top of human biology. It's not a scientific or biological category. And we don't apply this thinking to anyone else. When we deal with another human being, we don't stop to wonder if they're a person or not. They are one and the same. A person is simply an individual human. But this way of thinking isn't just more consistent with the science. It's also what we see when we open ourselves up to God's perspective on the question of the unborn child. And what we see in the Bible is not something cold and philosophical, but something deeply intimate, warm, and personal. Uh, The first thing we see in the scriptures is that all humans are made in the image of God and therefore have dignity and value. Genesis 1, 26 to 28. Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them. Every human is made in the image of God, and it gives them value and dignity. Have a look at what Nancy Piercy says about this. A Christian concept of personhood depends not on what I can do, but on who I am that I am created in the image of God and that God has called me into existence and continues to know and love me. Can you see that what we have here is not a human doing or a human achieving, but a human being? It's who we are. And all of this is something that the unborn child has and is as well. Have a look at how God relates even to a fetus in the womb. Psalm 139, we read earlier. You created me uh, my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. Can you see how David, the author of the psalm, identifies himself as the fetus in the womb? He says, that was me. And even then inside the womb, God was there in relationship to the fetus, relating to it, loving it, knowing it and forming it. Uh, The thing that defines a person is not what they know or do not know, but rather God's knowing of them. Have a look at Job 10. Did you not pour me out like milk and curdle me like cheese, clothe me with skin and flesh and knit me together with bones and sinews? You gave me life and showed me kindness, and in your providence watched over my spirit. God showed Job kindness and watched over his spirit even in the womb as he was being knit together. God shows the unborn child kindness. Jeremiah 1 5. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. Or have a look at a passage that's often forgotten in Psalm 22. You brought me out of the womb. You made me trust in you, even at my mother's breast. From birth, I was cast on you. From my mother's womb, you have been my God. Grace City, what does God think of the unborn child? God loves her, God loves him. He is tender with the unborn child and kind and knows her and him intimately. Before an ultrasound can show you a picture of a baby, God is there forming and shaping a heart, fingers, and toes. And so what does that mean for us? Very simply, it means all people are deserving of life and protection, especially the vulnerable and voiceless, and that includes unborn children. And if I may... I want to humbly, gently, but also unashamedly put my finger upon a few hypocrisies in our culture. Here I'm speaking more generally about our culture. Our culture claims to defend the marginalised, the weak and the vulnerable, but not the most weak and the most vulnerable, not them. Our culture claims to stand up for the rights of all humans, but not those ones. They don't quite have the same rights. Scarlett Johansson once said that abortion is no longer a women's rights issue, but a human rights issue. And yet it's strange that what we call a human right isn't extended to those whose life is taken. And it's true. Our world, our culture, is responding to real pain hurt and injustices in the past. And this is certainly not all there is to say. There is more to say. But if our culture thinks that this is what it takes to right the wrongs of the past, then we need to ask whether what our culture is proclaiming is really good news of hope and justice, or whether what it's proclaiming is a false gospel that has simply traded one set of injustices for another. God loves the unborn child without qualification. And so whatever we do and whatever we go on to say, let us love like him. If I might gently offer a reflection on the statement, my body, my choice, it would simply be to say this. There is another body. And though it is dependent on the mother's body, it is not simply part of her body. There is a unique individual and precious human person and we can't forget that, even as we go on to say more, and we will. Our God loves unborn children. Will we do that too? But if we think that that's all that needs to be said, then we really haven't understood what's at stake in this issue, especially for women. We can't just offer some fancy arguments about the unborn child and think we can leave it there. That is part of the conversation. We've talked about some of it. That's part of it, but it's about far more than that. Here's why. We need to be more than just pro-birth. If we are going to be pro-life, then we also need to love the woman, the mother, Of the unborn child. If we are nothing more than pro birth, then the major danger is that we just shift all the weight and heartache onto the woman who has to pick up the pieces. See, it's possible to hear everything we've said so far about the fetus being a human person and to still arrive at firmly so called pro choice conclusions. Mary Elizabeth Williams, uh, she's a U.S. author and commentator. She's written for places like the New York Times. Uh, In one article, she says this. I believe that life starts at conception. Throughout my own pregnancies, I never wavered for a moment in the belief that I was carrying a human life inside of me. She goes on. When we try to act like a pregnancy doesn't involve human life, we wind up drawing stupid semantic lines in the sand First trimester abortion versus second trimester versus late term, dancing around the issue, trying to decide if there's a single magic moment when a fetus becomes a person. But then she concludes with this. A fetus can be a human life without having the same right as the woman in whose body it resides. She's the boss. Her life and what is right for her circumstances and her health should automatically trump the rights of the non-autonomous entity inside of her. Always. Can you hear what's being said? A woman needs to have the option of terminating a pregnancy for her to have the full rights uh, as a woman and as a human. And in the words of that article, her rights automatically trump whatever rights the unborn child has. Can you see how it's framed as a zero-sum game? Somebody gets trumped. But the assumption running underneath all of this is that women are better off for having the free option to abort. The assumption is that abortion is a pro-woman solution. And I think for many that's an assumption beyond question. And it's at this point I become acutely aware that I am a man. So for this next section, I am almost exclusively going to draw on the insights of women. In fact, I'll simply just do a lot of quoting. Emma Wood. She's an Australian professor of philosophy. She specialises in the areas of feminism, sexual ethics and the ethics of abortion. Um, In an episode of the podcast, Undeceptions, called Pro-Life, which I highly, highly recommend, she says this. The idea that abortion is a pro-woman solution to a challenge that human beings have, the challenge of living out your sexuality and the challenge of nurturing the life that comes from that, The idea that abortion is or could be a pro-woman solution has, for a long time, struck me as implausible. Now, it could be that she has simply been duped, that she has bought into chauvinistic ideology, but at least listen to why she thinks it's implausible that abortion is a pro-woman solution. The first thing she points out is that abortion actually gives sexually selfish men a get-out-of-jail-free card. Have a listen to what she says. While the original solution to reproductive asymmetry, which is just the fact that sex costs women more than it costs men, the original solution to that reality used to be marriage. Now the solution to that problem is abortion. Because with easily available abortion, it has become harder for women to hold men to account when they become pregnant. It is harder for women to get a commitment from a man when they find themselves pregnant. So, of course, it's women who end up on the abortionist table with all the associated negative impacts of post-abortion regret. While too many carefree men can walk away from that situation with an unequal consequence. Can you see what she's saying? She's saying that freely accessible abor- uh, having the freely accessible option of abortion actually has the effect of shifting more of the burden financially, emotionally and physically onto women and away from men. It leaves women to pick up the pieces. She actually quotes two economists who make this observation. By making the birth of the child the physical choice of the mother, the sexual revolution has made marriage and child support a social choice of the father. One of the consequences of such free access to abortion is that it has opened the back door for men to abandon their responsibilities as husbands and fathers and to lay it all at the feet of women. Noel Mering makes a similar point. Abortion destroys each icon of the family, the child, the father and the mother. All three are corrupted and made to become contrary to their nature. Man is able to impregnate woman, but obligated to neither the woman nor the product of conception in the sterile vernacular of the abortion industry. Meanwhile, woman is also liberated from any bond to man or to their child inside. In this dystopian vision of humanity, each of us is an island, autonomous and adrift, void of duty and hardened to love. Grace City, the cost of abortion is high, especially for women. But maybe you'd say that, All of this is still just a necessary cost to ensuring women's freedom and rights. And if that's you, I want to show you something. South Australia is the only Australian state that currently collects data on the official reasons for abortion. I've been through every report I've been able to find, but I want to show you a report from 2006, the reason why is because as far as I can tell, that was the last year they included a specific category for assault on a person, which includes rape or incest. I'm not sure why that is. This is the report. I don't show you this report lightly. I absolutely do not want to dismiss or minimise any of the more difficult cases. I strongly suspect that the real numbers are probably much higher. And we need to remember that this is only one year in South Australia. But the reason I show you this report is because over 95% of abortions were for mental health reasons. And that's consistent over every report. And within the category of mental health, the number one reason was that there was simply no desire for a child or that the timing was wrong. But it's this category of mental health that I want to just push into. Because some of the best research available suggests that women's mental health is worse off compared to carrying the baby to birth, which is absolutely heartbreaking. Uh, Have a listen to what Megan Best says. This raises the possibility that the law that was intended to reduce risks of mental health problems in women with unwanted pregnancy may in fact increase mental health risks. One study in the British Journal of Psychiatry found that increase to be 30%. Others suggest it may be higher. It's also hard to find good research in this area. We need more done. If you're interested, I have a number of papers uh, from top peer-reviewed psychiatry and psychology journals we can talk about afterwards. But here's where I want to stop and acknowledge something. As I have spoken to women, as I have read their stories, what I have heard time and time again is that women don't choose this path because they want to. If I can repeat something from the woman I spoke to. Women that go through it feel like there is no choice. Lots of women feel like they don't have real actual options, that they're stuck with having to do this. Grace City, it is utterly devastating that there are so many women around us and among us who feel trapped And like they don't have any other options. Even women who are morally opposed to it. If we truly want to be pro-life, we need to show women that there is another option and give it to them. And it starts with Jesus. All I want to do is read you a story. It comes from Luke chapter 7. It's quite long. This is what it says, and this is for all of us. kissed them and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two people owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii, the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, All of us are either that Pharisee or that woman. Our God has more love, grace and forgiveness than we could ever imagine. And it never runs out. Our God loves women. He loves these women. Paul says in Romans, there is no condemnation. For those who are in Christ Jesus, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So what kind of a church are we going to be? Will we make it easy to walk into our church? If we want people not to choose abortion, then we need to make having a baby a real option, not just in a practical sense, but in a cultural sense. Would you be willing to have a vulnerable pregnant woman live with you for a few months? Would you be willing to give part of your wage to support a new mother? Would you adopt a child? We need to be a community that welcomes sinners, that loves the mother as well as the child, a place where we love each other in our so-called big sins and the small ones. We need to embrace vulnerability and confess our sins rather than covering them up out of shame or fear. We need to speak without judgment and with humility and we need to listen without judgment and with humility with empathy, compassion and care. And the only reason we can do this is because of the life, freedom and forgiveness that is found only in Jesus. Our God loves the unborn child, and he loves women. Will we love like him? Would you pray with me that this would be true of us? <sighs> Heavenly Father, you are so full of love and compassion, and your grace never runs dry teach us we pray to love like you and forgive us for the times we haven't write on our hearts the truth that you are our God and that nothing can separate us from the love that is in Christ Jesus amen We're going to take a few moments of reflection now before we sing a song called Jesus Strong and Jesus Kind. And as we just heard, in this time, it might be a time to repent or confess. It might be a time to ask God, how can I play my part in this conversation and in this reality that affects people in my community, in my life, in my family and beyond? So take a few moments to reflect And then we'll be singing to our Lord Jesus who says, there is no condemnation for those who come to me.